Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to my humble abode, uh, and happy Monday to you all. Uh, I was informed after service yesterday that uh, we had technical difficulties again, and while uh, a video was taken of the sermon, there was no sound. And I'm willing to bet that there's nobody on earth, including my wife, that wants to look at 30 minutes of just me talking uninterrupted without even hearing what I have to say. A lot of people wouldn't choose to listen either. Uh, but any which way, we're going to try again here, and it's a lovely day for it, and I always like sitting in my yard while we do these things. So we were looking at Ezra chapter 5. We covered pretty much the whole chapter, um, but I'll be reading it in sections as we go through the message. I won't read it all up front. I think it's too much of a mouthful, but if you want to turn there, now's a good time to do that, and you can have it in front of you, and maybe you can hit pause and read ahead if you like. But I'll open as I did yesterday with a, a little bit of an anecdote. Um, it's a sad anecdote. Uh, back in July, I guess it was, while we were down uh, in Cape May vacationing as a family, uh, we received a very sad phone call. Actually, it started as a text from, from Elder Ken, uh, uh, and he's not one to really pester me uh, just for kicks and giggles or anything like that. So it turns out that he was calling to inform us that our beloved rabbit, Troubles, had uh, passed away. Uh, and the Georges have been so kind in watching our rabbit over the years. And, uh, you know, I, I guess they're out of a job, but I don't think it's a big loss. They didn't really... It wasn't high paying, let's just put it that way. But uh, I... I'll be honest in saying I, I did shed a lot of tears for this rabbit uh, because I was actually quite fond of him. And he was an affectionate rabbit. He was stupidly affectionate. He, he used to sit, even from a baby, he would sit on my chest and he would lick my face and he would do this for like, you know, a long time, 10 minutes at a time. And when I was in a bad mood, I would take the rabbit and sit there with him. And Georgia called him my therapy rabbit. And we had a lot of tall tales we told about this rabbit, uh, about the adventures that he probably had while we were asleep and this kind of thing. And so when it came to memorialize the rabbit, Jacob built him a very nice pine box, and we held a proper service for a rabbit, uh, and we wrote an epitaph for the lid of his coffin, which uh, Jacob beautifully burned into the wood. And the epitaph said this. It said, Troubles, pioneer, philosopher, poet, prince cowboy, world traveler, and therapist, a distinguished gentleman, he knew no fear. And I want to say that of all of the exaggerations on this epitaph, that last item is completely true and accurate. Uh, this rabbit literally had no fear of anything except maybe missing a meal. And some might say that made him kind of stupid. Uh, like, we have our two very large dogs, uh, Sprocket and Falcor. They would gladly have eaten this poor rabbit, and yet Chubbles would... He would walk on them. Uh, he would run around and nudge them real hard with his nose, trying to provoke them. He would lick their legs sometimes, um, but he could also be quite aggressive. And naturally, Falcor, who's our, our most uh, terrified, easily terrified dog, he was really spooked by the rabbit, and he would avoid him, and he would, like, climb up on the couch to get away from the rabbit, but sometimes Chubbles would, like, jump up there just to bother him. Um, so, of all the embellishments on the casket, the point is that last one's completely true. The, the, the gentleman thing is debatable. Chubbles certainly knew no fear. And that's a very uncommon thing. It's uncommon in the animal kingdom. It's also uncommon among humanity. Um, I don't know too many people that I would call fearless truly fearless. And when you do meet people who are fearless, uh, you wonder if something's wrong with them, because it's either 
it could be incredible courage, but it might just be sheer stupidity that makes people that way. And so I kind of tend to think, you know, Chubbles was either very brave or very foolish, and I think the same of people. Uh, because fear is a big motivator for most of us, if we're honest. We make a lot of our decisions out of fear. Not necessarily panic, but fear. And, and what we would consider or like to think is healthy risk assessment. Now, if I'm honest, many of my life decisions can be explained by avoiding, you know, that I'm avoiding my bigger fear, right? So um, if I work, it's because I'm afraid of being broke, you know. Um, <laughs> I said I, I fear public speaking, but I fear poverty more than that. Um, if we take care of our car, it's because we fear breaking down. If we wear a seatbelt, it's because we're afraid of accidents or else we're afraid of the cops catching us and being ticketed. Um, and so we tend to balance our fears against each other. And, um, you know, for instance, if you have to ask your boss for a raise, uh, you might do so even though you're afraid of doing that because you're more afraid of telling your wife that you didn't go through with it, that kind of thing. And so, you know, our, our decisions often reflect what we fear more. But the people of God are not meant to be driven by fear of anything except God himself. And we've seen that before in other books that we've covered. Um, we're often driven by unhealthy fears, and sometimes it's even an unhealthy fear of God himself. But there is such a thing as a healthy and appropriate fear of the Lord. It's a major theme in Scripture. And that's what we're called to. Uh, and when that fear is in order, ironically, you lose all other fears. And that lesson is driven home again in Ezra chapter 5. Uh, it's a fearful time, it's a fearful place, it's a fearful season for the people of God at that point, uh, but the best cure for a scary situation is a proper fear of the Lord, and that's what the Jews are sort of relearning in Ezra chapter 5. Uh, last week we finished up with Haggai's prophetic message to these people, um, and now we get to see what happens next. And I'm going to look again at chapter 5, just starting with the first couple verses here. It says, Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Edo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. So, Ezra sets the stage here pretty quickly, and somewhere in these just couple of verses uh, we is where Haggai falls, and also all 14 chapters, I guess, of Zechariah. Uh, so these are two serious prophets uh, contained in Scripture, and it's kind of uncommon, I think, to see two prophets that are pretty important working side by side like this, but I think it's an indication... Uh, of what God's people needed in this season. Um, I think it's because it's a scary time and because they had become lazy and pathetic, apathetic, uh, it was important enough that God sends them not just one prophet but two. And they listen to what God has to say through the prophets. They, they don't resist the rebuke. They don't try to defend themselves. They get up and they go to work. And it's worth noticing that the prophets don't just wander off and go back to some cave to, to contemplate. Verse 2 says that both of them stayed and were supporting the work. They're getting their hands dirty. They're preaching. They're encouraging the people on a daily basis. Um, and so I think that's an important thing to notice. The leadership is not just barking orders or, or yelling at people. Sometimes that's required. But uh, a prophet who is literally willing to work side by side with you, that's a, that's a really cool testimony. They're not just in an ivory tower somewhere, but in the trenches. So... And it's also a good reminder, God's people need constant encouraging. It's not enough to just drop some truth on people and walk away. Uh, God's people need someone to keep coming and pointing them back to the gospel. Uh, we all need that if we're going to do the work God's called us to. So it's a cool scene. Uh, 
But as they say, uh, no good deed goes unpunished. In verse 3 and verse 4, it says this, At the same time, Tatsunai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shether Bozenai, and their associates, came to them and spoke to them thus, Who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? They also asked them this, What are the names of the men who are building this building? But the eye of their god was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop them until the report should reach Darius, and then an answer be returned by letter concerning him. Okay, just looking at those verses 3 and 4 first. Um, it's kind of a familiar thing in the sense that there, there's new names involved here. We don't know these guys, but bureaucrats are bureaucrats, and in every age, in all times, and in all places. And if any of you have ever worked in an office, or if any of you have ever watched the office, um, you, you kind of know what it's like. And, and this really applies in any large business. Uh, there is nothing worse uh, than having a mid-level manager that's looking over your shoulder. Uh, red tape, bureaucracy, nosy officials, it's kind of the same, in, again, in all times and all places. Success is often measured by how much you can get your superiors to ignore you so you can get on with the work that you're supposed to be doing. And that's true even if you're young. If you're a student in school, I know when I was in high school this was the case, but often my goal was not to be noticed or ever called on or picked on by anybody. Uh, I, I don't want the unwanted attention. Um, and you especially don't want it from sort of the mid-level manager type, guys who aren't really in charge but are very eager to impress people who are. Uh, those are the people who like to make your life difficult. And that's what's happening here. You have these new governors, these new officials that are serving under a new king, Darius, and they're very eager to show the boss that they're very competent leaders. They want Darius to know that they can be trusted to keep things in order out here in the provinces. They are vigilantly sniffing out the traitors and the troublemakers. And it makes sense because Darius had ascended the throne by overthrowing his predecessor. It was a guy named uh, Bardia uh, and... Uh, Darius claimed that this guy was an imposter. He was not really a, a, the guy who belonged on the throne. We don't really know that at this point. But guys who have to overthrow their predecessor typically don't feel very secure on the throne, uh, especially early on. If, if it, because if you seize the throne, surely somebody else could do the same thing. And so sure enough, uh, Darius spent many of his early years putting down rebellions. Uh, and so he, was, he would have been eager to stomp out even a hint of rebellion. And so, therefore, these governors, the best way they can save their necks and earn the trust of the king is to find out any traitors and hang them if need be. And we all know that rebellion starts small. Um, if you're a parent, you know that it, it, it doesn't always begin with an outright defiance. It begins by, you know, in your kids, they'll, they'll be grumbling about what you told them to do. And then they'll do almost what you said to do, but not quite what you said to do. And then they'll do it a little later after you told them to do it, you know. Uh, they delay. And... <laughs> We've learned by experience that rebellion has to be nipped early if you want to stop it. And so Tatanai and the rest of these guys, they have found a prime target. They have discovered that these Jews in Jerusalem are building a huge temple to a strange god that they don't know. And they figure that can't be good news, and this is their opportunity. So they march down to Jerusalem. They're going to see what's going on and to set things right. And they have two questions for the people doing this. And the first is a classic. They say, who said you could do this? Now, I call that a classic because my kids use that logic and that line almost every day with each other. Um, you know, who said you could watch the movie? Who said you could open the bag of chips? Who said you could eat that? Who said? We've all heard this. And the implication of such a question, uh, the underlying assumption, is that the answer is no one. Uh, or at least no one with an authority that I would recognize. Uh, the question insinuates that the answer is no. 
Um, so no one starts a question with what gives you the right and expects an answer that's going to be legitimate. And of course, they don't believe that the Jews could possibly have a right to do this because if there was a decree saying they could do it, they would presumably know about it because they're the local authorities and they happen to know that you have no building permit on file for this structure. We have nothing on file uh, and, and so that's already a problem. But then they ask a second question and it's far more sinister. Uh, they ask for a list of names, and that's never good, because now they're talking about creating a permanent record. And if you're in trouble with the law, your identity is better off a, a secret, if you can do that. Um, uh, my brother works in law enforcement. He said he once arrested a guy who tried to give a false name and was not able to spell it, um, <laughs> even though he was given multiple opportunities to do so. And so, you know, all right, note to self, if I'm going to give a false name... Uh, at least make it something easy to spell. Um, but uh, any which way, I, I understand the instinct of not wanting to give your name in that instance, because if you're in trouble for something else, why would you want to let your identity out? Uh, and if I was in huge trouble, trouble I, I wouldn't be eager to give out my name either. And when you ask for names like this, it makes it clear you're kind of treating this like a crime scene, like today's law enforcement would. Um, giving your names is a, it gives them a way to hunt you down later. And, you know, if you've watched enough World War II movies uh, on these various marathons that come on, like, you know, when Nazis show up and ask you for your papers, it's always a scary scene because if your papers aren't in order, you might get shot. Um, so I would argue this is a more sinister scene and more of a threat than what we saw in Chapter 4 when they were stopped from building. Because in that scene, it's implied some people got roughed up, but that was about it. Uh, once the building stopped, uh, the threat just kind of went away. But a list of names is different. Because uh, that could mean further persecution, prosecution, trials. Um, it, it's an enemies list, that is what they're making. And you would have no plausible deniability. I mean, especially if you have names like Zerubbabel. Like, how are you going to be like, no, that was some other Zerubbabel that was organizing the building. I don't know that guy. Um, so, and, and But it's not just the leaders, either. Uh, they direct this at everybody. They want all the names, everyone involved. So what do you do in a situation like that? Uh, I think that the temptation would be to say, well, Lord, we tried. Uh, we, we tried building. We, we put in an effort, but the powers that be, they're just not letting us. There's too much political pressure. If only you would give us a more politically favorable situation. Better to wait for, for better circumstances. Um, and so, you know, if you don't want to have the scrutiny of local politicians, that would make sense. Uh, because these guys, again, are trying to make a name for themselves. Uh, and if you don't want... If you know these guys are trying to make a name for yourselves, you, your instinct is that you don't want them to do it on your back and using your name to do so. So so that would be a natural thing. But what did they actually do in verse 5? It says, But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop them until the report should reach Darius, and then an answer be returned by letter concerning it. So that's very different from what we would expect, and it's very different from what we saw in chapter 4. The elders have grown a spine. Or, if you like, uh, they are acting as men who know no fear. Uh, they tell the workers, no, keep working, keep it up, there's not going to be a work stoppage. You bureaucrats, you can tell the king what we're doing, and we will wait for his response. But in the meantime, we have work to do. And I think what the critical line is, really, in the entire chapter, is the beginning there of verse 5, when it says that their, the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews. That phrase is sort of what conditions the rest of the passage, and, and it's what makes the difference. Um, some translations alter the wording here to something more like God took care of, which is true, but the ESV is more 
uh, accurate to the Hebrew here, uh, that God's eye was on them and therefore they did X. Now I think Hebrew is similar at times to, to modern English in that a phrase can mean different things. If we say we have our eye on something, that can convey very different ideas. So if I say I'm keeping an eye on my kids, uh, I am basically keeping them from killing themselves, I'm protecting them, right? Uh, on the other hand, if Big Brother says he has his eye on you, that's creepy. If I say that I'm, I have my eye on something on a menu in a restaurant, uh, that means I want it. Maybe I want several items on the restaurant menu. Uh, I can say the same phrase. I can say, I got my eye on you. And that can be a way of flirting with my wife, or it could be a way of threatening my neighbor uh, who keeps speeding down the street. Uh, that's a true story, but different. You know, that's, that's a whole other story. Um, but those are very different things, you know, like if, if Dwayne the Rock Johnson gives you the hairy eyeball, and, you know, I don't know how to do that, but, like, you know, that's, that's got a different look than a look of protection, right? It's a, it's a threatening thing. But so ha having an eye on something can imply anything from scrutiny, suspicion, desire, protection, care, flirtation, control, threat. And perhaps verse 5 could contain a little bit of several of those things, but... God has just promised in Haggai, as we talked about last week, he had just promised to bless his people. And so when it says that his eye was on them, his eye is not meant to be threatening in this context. Uh, it means protection. It means care. It means security. And it produces a people who have no fear, except a fear of the Lord. Um, when God has his eye on you, and you know it. If you really believe it, it changes how you act. Uh, it introduces a new kind of fear, a healthy fear of the Lord. And there's comfort and assurance that comes with being under his protective gaze. Uh, and it makes a difference in how you respond to other fears in your life. Uh, now, verse 5 doesn't tell us how the leaders respond exactly, but the details are given in this letter and report that Tatanai ultimately sends to the king. And as we read this report, I'm going to pause at different points to point out the difference that it makes when God has his eye on you and when your fears are therefore properly prioritized. Uh, the letter starts in verse 7, uh, but I'll, I'll start here in verse 6. Uh, this is a copy of the letter that Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shether Bozani and his associates, the governors who were in the province beyond the river, sent to Darius the king. They sent him a report in which was written as follows. To Darius the king, all peace. Be it known to the king that we went to the province of Judah to the house of the great God. It is being built with huge stones, and timber is laid in the walls. This work goes on diligently and prospers in their hands. So the first thing I want you to notice is that when God has his eye on you, you work hard. And the description here of the temple sounds totally different from what we've been hearing up until now, because we've been reading up until now that the old men in the group, they have been absolutely depressed looking at this building. And the reason why is because it looks pathetic. It doesn't look anything like Solomon's temple. Uh, it's being built with recycled rubble. We've talked about this. Now we read that there are huge stones, which means somebody's purchasing these things and hauling them, right? It's not just rubble anymore. And the timbers are impressive enough that Tatanai thinks they're worth mentioning. Uh, you know, if he had just said, hey, they're building something, like, you wouldn't describe it the way he just did. He's emphasizing that the building is impressive. Um, and I don't think Tatanai is super happy about this, but he is impressed with the work ethic that he sees. He says they're working diligently. He says that the work is going well. 
In other words, he's not concerned that the building's an eyesore and, and, or, or that it isn't safe or that it's like it's an embarrassment to the Empire or anything. He's actually concerned that it's actually kind of stunning. It's really big. And so when God is watching you, you work hard, and under his watchful eye, it tends to prosper. And unbelievers tend to take notice of that. But I also want to observe that they're not doing this work in their own strength uh, to earn God's favor. They are working here in response to God's grace. This diligent labor is actually a direct response to the undeserved blessing that was promised through Haggai. So it's grace first, then works, and the works are a response to and not a precondition of God's grace. Uh, but what do they have to say for themselves? Now we actually get their words as recorded by Tatanai in verse 9. He says, Then we asked those elders and spoke to them thus, Who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? We also asked them their names for your information, uh, that we might write down the names of their leaders. And this was their reply to us. We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth, and we are rebuilding the house that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and finished. So when God has his eye on you, you remember who you are. And I notice here that they do not give Tatanai a list of names at all. Uh, which means they don't rat each other out and they don't throw anyone under the bus. Instead, the elders give them what their more important identity is. They say, we're servants of God, and he made heaven and earth and everything in between. So our identity, our more important identity, is corporate. We stand and fall together. We don't, you don't need to hear our individual names because we're a team, we're a family, and we're all in on this. So the people of God are not merely a group of individuals, it's a body. And because God has his eye on them, they remember who they are and who they belong to. And that's part of what gives them a boldness to keep working for him. Uh, but they also are very clear about how they got into this mess in verses 12 through 16. He says, But because our fathers had angered the God of heaven, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar the king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed this house and carried away the people to Babylonia. However... In the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, Cyrus the king made a decree that this house of God should be rebuilt, and the gold and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple that was in Jerusalem and brought into the temple of Babylon, these Cyrus the king took out of the temple of Babylon, and they were delivered to one whose name was Sheshbazzar, whom we had made governor. He had made governor, and he said to him, Take these vessels, go and put them in the temple that is in Jerusalem, and let the house of God be rebuilt on its site. Then this Sheshbazzar came and laid the foundations of the house of God that is in Jerusalem, and from that time until now it has been in, in building, and it is not yet finished. So a couple things here. First off, when God has his eye on you, there's no room for boasting. Uh, at first, in this passage, it sounds like the Jews are proud of their ancestry. They mention Solomon, not by name, uh, but they mention this great king who built the first temple. But then they're very honest about how they got to where they are right now. They say, our fathers failed. God was angry with them, and rightfully so. Um, so they don't blame Nebuchadnezzar, and they don't blame God. They don't blame military blunders. They, in essence, are blaming themselves corporately as the people of God. They say, we are God's people, and we screwed up. Uh, but now God has been merciful and blessed us, and so we're trying to serve him as best we can. I mean, and how can we do otherwise? We can't possibly stop now because the work is not yet finished, it says in verse 16. So it's not a belligerent response. This is rooted in humility and repentance. So what you're seeing overall is that if God has his eye on us, it changes how we act. 
Uh, because having his eye on us means that he is protecting us. And maybe it's scary, too, to have his eye on you. But having a proper and healthy fear of the Lord means that all the other fears dissipate. They go away. And it means that here the Jews are more afraid of disobeying God than they are of upsetting Darius. And that has application, obviously, for us as well. Um, if God really has his eye on you, you're not easily bullied because by fearing God, you don't fear men so much. Uh, if God is watching you, you work hard because he's been good to you and he's protecting you. If God is watching you, you don't have to hide your mistakes or pretend they didn't happen. How can you possibly be proud if God is watching you? And if God has his eye on you, you cannot sit still as long as there's still work to do. So when we serve God, we serve him and trust him with the consequences because he's watching us. And that's what the Jews do here, that they keep working and they have faith that justice will prevail. They're confident that the king will, will rule in their favor if he just digs in the records. And, but, they, but they're in a position where they can faithfully submit to the king because they trust God with the situation. So fear of the Lord is such an important theme throughout scripture, but in this chapter as well, because it means so much more than fear. And we know that having absolutely no fear is not logical. Uh, there's a reason Troubles is the only uh, creature I know who had no fear, really. Uh, Troubles knew no fear because he was ignorant. He was a rabbit. Uh, rabbits are not high in God's hierarchy of intelligent creatures, really. But the more you think about it, and the more I've reflected on this, I think that the reason Troubles had no fear was because we would not let anything happen to him. He was born under our couch, in our living room. He lived his whole life under our auspices and under our care. In other words, he had no fear because we had our eye on him. And I wish we could all be as bold as Troubles. Um, and I know, unfortunately, we, we aren't like that. We all have fears, and some of them are very real. They're very logical fears. We fear... Uh, our, our sin and what it does. We fear failure. We fear the culture. We fear uncertainty. We fear pain. We fear death. Um, so none of us are as fearless as that silly old rabbit. But if we really believe and are convinced that God has his eye on us, then we literally have nothing to fear except him. And if we fear him, we have no reason to fear anything else. Not man, not our, our circumstances, not the government, not mid-level bureaucrats, not even failure. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, Scripture tells us. And wisdom is not afraid of what men might do to us. Uh, this report to Darius, it, it could almost come across as arrogant, but in reality it is simultaneously bold and humble. And if God is watching you, both things must be true. God's watchful eye should make you both bold and humble. And I think that's a picture of the gospel here in Ezra 5. The gospel leaves no room for boasting. Uh, Paul tells us in Romans that the law of faith excludes boasting in Romans 3. And yet, that same gospel that excludes boasting makes someone like Paul so bold that he'll confront governors, kings, and even emperors. Why? Because God's eye is on his people. And we're going to see next week more of Darius's response to this, this letter, um, uh, and we have that benefit. God's people in Ezra 5 didn't really know what was going to happen next. They were operating in faith, but they did know that God's eye was on them, and that made enough of a difference. And they had this healthy fear of God, and that made them bold about what they were doing right now. But I want us to reflect as a church, 
at LVP, or maybe you're watching this online and you're at another church, but reflect on where you are in your walk and as a church. Um, we have something in common at our church with the people in Ezra 5. Um, we have a mission. Uh, as God's people and as a church here in Allentown, uh, we have a calling and a job to do. We are here to reach this city for Christ. And we have a lot of obstacles in our way uh, because our culture is not very friendly to the gospel. And if we're honest, frankly, we're, we're, we're not always that excited about our mission as a church. We would much rather just kind of go along and go through the motions than actually tackle this thing. But the question becomes, do we believe that God's eye is on us? And if he is watching us, how shall we then live? What are we going to be afraid of? His eye should make a difference in that calculation. And if the gospel is true, and if Jesus has already died and risen, and if he is reigning at the Father's right hand on our behalf, if, if our sin has been defeated, and if our enemies are being vanquished, and if Jesus is on his throne, then we have nothing left to fear. And as the old song says, his eye is on the sparrow, his eye is also on the rabbit, and his eye is certainly on his people. And if we know that his eye on us is on us, and if we fear him, there's nothing else left to fear. And that's really cool. Amen. Let's pray about that. Gracious God and Father, I thank you so much for this beautiful day. We thank you for the opportunity we have to study your word, Lord. And we thank you, uh, Lord, that we don't have to live in fear. That ultimately, if we properly fear you as we're supposed to, that drives out all other fears, Lord. And we pray that you would teach us to live uh, kind of like troubles, as those who know no fear except the fear of the Lord. Teach us to know that your eye is on us, and I pray that that would make a difference in how we live, Lord, how we work, how we repent, how we treat each other, and how we spread your word in this city and wherever you place us. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, you all have a wonderful week. And I'm going to get back to cleaning the garage. Take care. God bless. Praise God from whom all blessings.